2021 Vasculitis Guidelines Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and I'm excited to be talking to you today about eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or eGPA, with Dr. Phil Seo. In case you're just tuning in, this is a podcast series from the Vasculitis Foundation, where I'll be reviewing the 2021 ACRVF-sponsored Vasculitis Guidelines and discussing the updated recommendations with one of the main authors um, from each guideline document. We have a great episode today that I am very much excited to share with you. So for starters, uh, as I mentioned, we're talking about eGPA. Uh, as a brief introduction, about 40% of people with eGPA are ANCA positive, but it's different enough from GPA and MPA uh, that I think it makes sense to discuss it separately and it has its own set of guidelines. My personal experience is just that eGPA is a tough disorder. While it's characterized by eosinophilia, rhinosinusitis, and adult onset asthma, uh, these symptoms can be quite refractory and difficult to treat. Um, moreover, a high proportion of patients develop organ-threatening disease, uh, which includes an aggressive neuropathy and a multitude of cardiac involvements. Um, the latter of these account up for up to half of the deaths attributable to eGPA and are something that I think we're all concerned about. Now, uh, before I introduce our guests, I wanna briefly mention a couple of recommendations that likely confirm your typical practice. So these include uh, conditional recommendations for conventional synthetic DMARDs with corticosteroids over corticosteroids alone. And that's about it, because I think the rest of these were quite interesting. So with that, I would like to take a deeper dive into some of these recommendations. Uh, like I said, my guest today will be Dr. Phil Seo, director of the Johns Hopkins Vasculitis Center in Baltimore. Uh, welcome, Dr. Sia. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, no, I, well, it's an honor to have you. I always enjoy your talks, and uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. So, uh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd like to start with something I know has been a hot topic and just dive right in, which is uh, the role of rituximab in the treatment of eGPA. So for, for induction therapy for active severe eGPA, the guidelines conditionally recommend cyclophosphamide or rituximab for remission induction, which suggests that either would be reasonable and kind of establishes a, a kind of de facto equivalence between the two. I, I'm curious to hear what led the guideline committee to recommend this and, 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 and where do you stand on, on it yourself? Is that how you interpret it too? So I think that's a great question. And the first thing I would say is that you have to remember that eGPA is kind of like the lupus of the vasculitis world. <laughs> so just like you could have one patient who basically has skin disease and one patient who has CNS disease and is losing their kidneys, and they're both classified as having SLE. And in the same way, eGPA encompasses a large spectrum of patients who can very, look very different clinically. So I think that what the recommendation is really speaking to is the patients who look more like the vasculitis patients. Now, remember that there are two groups. One was the French vasculitis study group, and there was one study that was conducted in Italy that looked at large populations of patients with eGPA, and they found that they kind of segregated according to ANCA positivity. So it's the ANCA positive patients who look more like MPA, for example, and they tend to have glomerulonephritis, pulmonary hemorrhage, monitorized multiplex, that sort of thing. And then there are the ANCA-negative patients who look much more like they've got an eosinophilic disorder. Now, I think that as rheumatologists, we're much, much more likely to see the refractory vasculitic type patients. And for those patients, I think rituximab is actually pretty reasonable. Interesting. I like that. I like that answer. And, and I like the, the comparison to, to lupus. I've never thought of it that way myself, but whenever I'm teaching lupus, I always say there's, there's 40 different kinds of lupus because there really are these, it's a very heterogeneous disease. And I think that makes treatment challenging and it makes running trials challenging because you're, you're trying to uh, assess one thing, but you really may have multiple things. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So uh, feed to the fire. Uh, what percent of your patients do you think you're putting on who have severe active disease? Are you putting on cyclophosphamide or rituximab for initial induction therapy? You know, I'm going to confess that I don't see a lot of patients anymore who need treatment with either cyclophosphamide or rituximab. Uh, those are really the patients who have got the organ involvement that have severe refractory disease that continues to flare, even though they're on moderate doses of prednisone. That certainly occurs, but it's not a common occurrence for me. Uh, that said, for patients who have myocarditis in particular, which is where this question comes up, I tend to default to cyclophosphamide. Uh, there's a possibility rituximab might work. If you look at the studies, like the, uh, the series looking at rituximab for eGPA, those patients are by and large uh, excluded, or that's only a small number of the patients who are examined. So I'm really uncomfortable using rituximab in that particular case. I think that's kind of a default assumption for many of us is that if we feel uncomfortable, we should think about cyclophosphamide. But uh, I think it's good to reassess that regularly. And, and uh, you know, hopefully with more data, we'll get there. But I don't know how, how many more trials we run assessing that particular question. Right. The, the way I normally tell people about it is cyclophosphamide is dying, but it's not dead yet. <laughs> All right, we're, we're, we're five minutes in and already two uh, novel quips that I really like. All right, so my next question is also about severe GPA. Uh, the guidelines conditionally recommended treatment with conventional synthetic DMARDs. So that's uh, methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate, mofetil, uh, over rituximab or mepolizumab. So following up on what we just said, you know, why not rituximab, uh, given the primacy in ankyovasculitis, uh, where we think that rituximab maintenance is probably the way to go these days. Uh, and if, you know, if you're going to use it for initial induction therapy, why, why not continue it? Sure. So with regards to rituximab for emission maintenance in eGPA, uh, there is an ongoing trial by the French Vasculitis Study Group examining that exact question. So I think in maybe two or three years, I'll have a real answer for you. In the meantime, that trial will be the only solid data we're going to have. So I think intuitively, if you've got an eGPA patient who basically has glomerular nephritis, I think what you said is really reasonable. And of course, we would consider rituximab for remission maintenance. It's just there's not really a lot of data supporting that approach. Uh, as for mepolizumab, remember that mepolizumab in the MIRA study, which was run by Mike Wexler, only really looked at patients who've got mild to moderate disease. Didn't really look at patients with life-threatening manifestations of eGPA. Now, it doesn't mean that mepolizumab couldn't help those patients. It just means that for that patient population, I think it's still an open question. Yeah, I think that's pretty helpful. I, my next question was going to relate to that, but you kind of covered it there, which is that you know maybe mepolizumab might not cover these sort of more severe vasculitic manifestations of disease. Uh, do you see a role as kind of an adding as an adjunctive therapy in addition to things, or would you just kind of lean towards a conventional synthetic DMARD for someone who has the vasculitic variety of eGPA? Yeah, so I just talked a little bit about the ankyopositive versus ankyonegative patients. And now that I said that, I'm gonna contradict that entirely, which <laughs> is people tend to overlap a lot when it comes to these manifestations. So I'd love to say that traditionally we say that once a patient enters the vasculitic phase of eGPA, that their asthma gets substantially better. And that just doesn't seem to be true in my patients. For the majority of my patients, long after I treated the vasculitis, their main problem is they're still short of breath. So I think that the way I break it down is I think mepolizumab is an amazing drug for anything that deals with the respiratory tract. So for patients who have got chronic sinusitis or chronic asthma where they're requiring inhalers on a regular basis and they're uh, constantly getting uh, medrol dose packs in order to keep their asthma under control, I think mepolizumab is a great drug. What I'm not sure about is if it's also a great drug for that patient who has glomerulonephritis, pulmonary hemorrhage, or monarized multiplex. 
So for a lot of patients, I'll end up using both. I'll use a traditional CSD mark to prevent the relapse of the vasculitic component. And I'll use something like mepolizumab or another anti-IL-5 in order to keep the respiratory symptoms under control. That makes a lot of sense. And I found myself doing that as well, just because EGPA has a lot of manifestations and it is a hard, hard disease to treat sometimes. So that actually does lead into my next question, which is just about the duration of therapy. There was an ungraded position statement uh, that said, you know, we should guide our group of corticoid therapy by clinical condition, values, preferences, which is reasonable. But I, I, I'm curious to know how you approach this question in your clinical practice. You know, uh, I think that there's uh, some people could say you should shoot for six months and then leave people on five milligrams as they did in Pexavast, the low dose regimen. Uh, but I think some of us are scared of this disease and may like to stretch them a little bit further. So when do you pull back or what do you do for glucocorticoids? And then kind of a related question, how long do you continue uh, uh, DMARDs in this disease? So for a lot of patients who don't have life-threatening manifestations of eGPA, I can generally start with 0.5 mg per kg of prednisone. So the taper is not as much of a big deal as it is for patients who have like life-threatening manifestations, for example. As for the tail end of it, um, there is an old study from uh, Wolfgang Gross's group that indicates that most patients end up on being 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone a day in order to keep their disease under control. And I think it's true for a lot of patients with eGPA, no matter what you treat them with, they still need a little bit of prednisone, especially to keep their bronchospasm under control. So once I get to 10 milligrams, I start to slow down the prednisone taper and I'll go down in one milligram increments once a month. And I just wait till I hit a wall. If someone really manages to taper completely off of steroids, I'm just pleasantly surprised that it worked. I would say that's the minority of patients. And for the majority of patients, they're not complaining of bronchospasm, but they did notice that they had to cut back a little bit on their activities and they're not exactly sure why. And for me, that's my clue that the prednisone taper has probably gone as far as it can. Uh, that makes me feel better to hear that you too do the one milligram homeopathic reduction strategy. I, I just feel like people hit a wall and you never know exactly where it's gonna be. And it's nice to just tailor it closely. But sometimes I have patients ask me, why are we doing one milligram? I mean, it's like, it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. And I said, I don't know, it's how I, it feels good. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's an old story at Hopkins about Mary Betty Stevens, who was basically like the Elvis of rheumatology educators for her generation. She's responsible for training a lot of people who are now mm -hmm. division directors or department directors on their own. And when she passed along a patient, the first piece of advice she would give to a fellow would be don't mess with the prednisone. Cause a lot of these patients would be on like three milligrams or four milligrams or something. And inevitably the first year fellow would taper the prednisone that the patient didn't seem to need. And inevitably that patient would have an awful relapse that would require that they get hospitalized again. If you talk to people of that generation, they all have a story just like that. Yeah, oh, okay. No, I, I think that's kind of a, a soft thing. That's one, one reason I'm really excited about doing these podcasts is to hear stories like that. <laughs> Um, all right, so let me go on to my next question, uh, which is kind of a complicated one. So let me give you some background and then I have two, uh, two specific questions about it. So the, the, the guidelines uh, did not use this five-factor score to risk stratify patients um, into sort of severe or non-severe disease groups, which I think a lot of us have become accustomed to doing here and there. Uh, but then there's a conditional recommend at the, recommendation at the end to use the five-factor score. So for those who are not terribly familiar with this, the, the five-factor score was developed by the French Vasculitis Study Group as a prognostic tool. Uh, patients who lacked one of the five factors, uh, which were proteinuria, renal insufficiency, GI involvement, cardiomyopathy, and CNS involvement, that, that's the 96 iteration at least. Uh, those patients who don't have any of those could be treated with glucocorticoids alone. My, my, my first question to you is about uh, the, the use of the five-factor score. So 
why did the guideline authors decide to use severe or non-severe as a risk stratification framework as opposed to using the five-factor score? So I think it gets back to uh, where the terminology severe versus non-severe came from. Uh, remember that it used to be severe versus limited disease. And that terminology was developed by John Stone and Ulrich Specks for the WeGet trial, which is a trial you don't need to know about because it didn't work. But that actually sort of led to the system that Americans have used to divide patients into patients who either need things like cyclophosphamide and rituximab versus patients who can be uh, induced with milder drugs like methotrexate or azathioprine. So that classification is really the classification that was developed to help people decide what types of treatments the patient needed to get. The five-factor score is a prognostic index. It, it's independent of treatment. All the five-factor score says is you have certain criteria, you have a certain mortality at five years. It's never really developed to, to help you decide how to treat a patient because the five-factor score is independent of treatment. So I think it's useful for us to keep in mind, and I like the fact that we gave the five-factor score a little bit of love because I think in the United States, we don't talk about it enough because I think it does give you a lot of useful information when it comes to talking to a patient about what they can expect over the next several years. But it really was never meant to be a treatment guide. Hmm. I like that. Uh, yeah, good to give some love to the French vasculitis study group. They've done a lot of, a lot of good work for, uh, for the field of vasculitis. Absolutely. Um, following, up on that, following up on that though, so the guidelines did recommend that for patients with uh, non-severe disease, they would recommend starting either mepolizumab or conventional synthetic DMARDs over glucocorticoids alone. So this kind of establishes a principle where all patients who are newly diagnosed with eGPA, non-severe and severe, will all get a DMARD. Uh, is that, does, that, does that ring true to you? Is that kind of the intention here? I think that it sort of acknowledges the people that are putting together these guidelines and maybe doesn't encompass all the patients you might see. Now, remember that a lot of us run vasculitis centers of our own. And because of that, we tend to see people who have already seen maybe two or three other rheumatologists and they're just not doing well. And I think that biases is a little bit towards being a little bit more aggressive when it comes to using uh, additional agents besides glucocorticoids. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that there's a decent number of patients with eGPA who basically just have bad asthma. And I think for those patients, it would be really reasonable to think of glucocorticoid monotherapy. It's just not the majority of patients that most of us see at our centers. Yeah. I also struggle. Some of those people who are EGPA and look like mostly bad asthma, they're kind of hard to differentiate from just hypereosinophilic syndromes and hypereosinophilic pneumonia. And so maybe a short one of glucocorticoids would be sufficient in some of those. I don't know. It's tough to, tough to differentiate between those sometimes. You know, the great thing about mepolizumab in particular is that it works not only for EGPA, it works for chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, and it works for the idiopathic hypereosinophilic syndrome. So as long as you know you're in that ballpark and your patient doesn't have like strongyloides, for example, mepolizumab actually probably isn't a bad agent. It's probably safer for most patients actually to block interleukin-5 than it is to give them prednisone. Yeah, and it's overall well-tolerated. I always love a treatment where, you know, if you're wrong, you still win. Uh, whenever you can find that in rheumatology, it's a, it's a, safe, a safe bet. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, last but not least, and uh, this is a screening question that hangs over all of my initial consultations for this disease. As I, I mentioned in the introduction that half of deaths are from, that are attributable to eGPA come from cardiac disease. Uh, there was a conditional recommendation to obtain a TTE at the time of a transthoracic echocardiogram at this time of diagnosis. So, so two questions here as well. Uh, the first one is, uh, do you think that we're missing a lot of asymptomatic cardiac disease just as, as, a, as a field? So I am going to answer your question by answering a slightly different question. So Ulrich Specks, uh, who is a giant in the field, 
uh, did a case series years ago looking at patients with GPA, and he demonstrated that their ejection fraction decreased at the time of flare and then became normal again when the flare was treated. So that observation doesn't really influence treatment, but it does make me think that there probably is a higher proportion of patients out there who have cardiac disease that we'll never know because we don't standardly perform echocardiograms on all the patients that we see. Mm-hmm. And then a kind of a follow-up just on the question of echocardiograms themselves. I, I understand the recommendation for an echocardiogram, but you, you kind of split the difference here. We could have just said an EKG, which is quicker, cheaper, more accessible in general, or we could have said, you know, go straight to a cardiac MRI, which, you know, you're going to probably get more information about inflammatory lesions. That's what we're looking for in the first place with a cardiac MRI. So, so what led the, the, the guideline committee to recommend a, a TTE, which is kind of maybe a middle ground between the two, but has some advantages, some disadvantages compared to either of, of the others? Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think we're trying to split the difference between cost effectiveness and effic- uh, efficacy. So uh, EKG, for example, I'd go back to the Framingham data. So Framingham indicates that EKGs are effective at diagnosing LVH in maybe 3% of patients. So even if you would say that your cardiologist is 10 times better than the Framingham cardiologist, they're only getting that finding in 30% of patients. So I feel like the EKG probably isn't a great screening tool to find all the cardiac dysfunction that we're looking for in our patients. At the other end of the spectrum, there are definitely a case series of patients who have eGPA who have these um, patchy eosinophil infiltrates in their heart, which again, don't seem to influence therapy. They just seem to go away when you put them on whatever therapy you were going to give them initially anyway. So I feel like we would get a lot of information from cardiac MRIs that wouldn't necessarily be useful for us because we wouldn't know what to do with it. It's a wise point about all screening exams, which is that Often when you screen, you find things that uh, instigate actions that may or may not actually help the patient. And so, uh, you know, getting a more sensitive screening modality doesn't necessarily improve actual actual care. Uh, right. I, I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So uh, before we leave, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add or anything else you're curious to, to make sure that people knew about the eGPA guidelines? I think that the eGPA guidelines are just that, they're guidelines. So inevitably, when I give a talk, for example, the 15 minutes at the end of the talk is what I call stump the chump, where patients present, uh, where patients are presented to me who just break all the rules. And I think that happens, especially with eGPA. So I would not be surprised if the listeners out there uh, had patients in their own practice who violated one of the recommendations. And I think that's absolutely fine. These are really just guidelines to get you started. I think that's a a brilliant note to end on and probably something that we should just say at the end of every single one of these podcasts. So I think that's a good place to end. Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Seo, for coming on the show. I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone else has really enjoyed this, including all the quips that I knew would happen and wound up being just as good as I'd hoped. So um, please please be sure to check out the Vasculitis Foundation. You can find them on their website at vasculitisfoundation.org or on Twitter at vasculitisfound. You can find me at EB Room. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you once again, Dr. Seema, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you.